When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before we get going with today's podcast, I want to talk to you a little bit about our partner, Sportscope. Sportscope is the industry leader in end zone camera and sideline instant replay technology. Sportscope manufactures 20 and 30 foot quality U.S. made end zone towers with the most advanced technology to make filming on game day easy and stress free. Sportscope end zone cameras allow your camera operator to film from up in the press box, have built in instant replay for making crucial in game adjustments, and even have artificial intelligence designed to get you consistent end zone film and reduce your video staff on game nights. Their product, Edge Replay, syncs multiple camera angles and delivers instant replay to your sideline iPads in seconds with no laptops needed. Paired with their three-point network, the Sportscope app gives you full playback control so you can make adjustments your players can see. The Sportscope app offers easy and predictive play tagging by ODK and is packed with smart features to save you time and allow for easy uploads after the game. Give your staff the edge on game nights with Sportscope, end zone camera, and edge replay. Visit sportscope.com today and check out our episode with Doug Rivers, who is the technology coordinator and tight ends coach at Dutch Fork High School, six-time South Carolina state champion and a nationally ranked team. He goes through how they use Sportscope to give them the best workflow on game nights for in-between series adjustments and halftime adjustments. The link to that one will be in the show notes. Today's episode is about the Woody Hayes passing game. In 1958, Glenn Tiger Ellison created the run-and-shoot offense to turn his community's football fortunes around, and in the process, he not only saved his job, but rallied the success into a position on Woody Hayes' Ohio State coaching staff. At Middletown High School in Ohio, Ellison and the offense led the team to a 38-7 record and began a revolution with the run-and-shoot. After winning with his run-and-shoot offense, Tiger went on to become an assistant for Mr. Three Yards and a Cloud of Dust himself, Woody Hayes. Woody wrote the foreword to Tiger's book, noting to Ellison, you're the forward passingest coach in the country, and they say I'm the most non-passingest coach that ever lived. It's true that Woody was known for saying, when you throw a pass, three things can happen, and two of them are bad. And he was certainly known for his grinded-out run game, which Ohio State made a living on. A great resource that I have on my shelf 
I actually have three copies of it now, is Woody Hayes' book, Hotline to Victory. I actually recommended this book to Dan Lanning the other day when we were talking before Louisiana's virtual clinic. I'll put the link to that clinic in the state association's mega ticket in show notes. But I was telling Coach Lanning that this is one of the most detailed coaching books that I've ever seen. And that's true with what Woody Hayes put together in his passing game as well. When I looked at this and looked at how he diagrammed plays, he not only diagrammed the routes, but then he would diagram exactly where his receivers should go to block defenders and where the pass receiver should run after he caught the ball. You don't see that in diagrams today, but that was certainly in Woody's playbook. He also had very detailed instructions on the passing game, and today I'm going to share a part in which he writes about our passing game. I found this section of his book, really all sections of his book, highly interesting, but this one again shows the detail that he had as a coach, and I think if we were to look at what he does as a teacher, this is some of the best stuff and certainly is something to be modeled. So he starts off by saying the tie-up between running and passing. This does not mean running all passes from play action, but we believe that our passing game must be accessible and usable at any time we would normally use a running play. When our opponents stack the defense to stop our running, we must be ready to take to the air. An example, our last touchdown in the 1969 Rose Bowl was a result of crashing linebackers who ignored the delay pass to wingback Ray Gillian. As OJ could have run all the way to the Pacific, Ray could have gone all the way to the Rockies. 2. The use of the same formation. We mention this again for we feel that one of the truly great advantages of our passing is the fact that we do not give away our passing or our running by changing the formation. I think it's important to note here that is a great strategy and I think one we let get away from us at times especially on normal down in distances or on schedule downs, is that we get to a point where we're going to throw the ball and we go to something completely different. Now, that requires that we find some ways to balance that up with run from that formation, but I think that's a very important point when you're looking at putting together a game plan that when you're using formations that they both use the pass and the run. Number three, consistency in passing. This must include all called passes. There is considerable discrepancy between the press box statistics and the coach's own passing statistics. The press box statistics will show only the number of times that the ball was actually thrown, while our statistics, which we consider much more important, will show the number of times that a pass play was actually called. We feel that we must be able to maintain at least a 50% consistency for all passes called. In line with this thinking, we must first avoid interceptions but we must also avoid losses on pass plays in which the ball is not put into the air. Some important points there because we look for that balance and the statistics that you see on the normal stat sheet, again, don't reflect that like Woody said. How many times did you call a pass? That might result in the quarterback escaping from the pocket or not liking what he saw down the field and taking off and running it. And that certainly, as we will get to, it was part of Woody's passing game plan. Number four, the third choice. This brings us into a situation which is unique to our football for we believe in planning for a third choice. We think in terms of first receiver, 
second receiver, and then run. The then run is an anticipated quarterback draw for in our pass protection, we block the defense in such a manner and we get our quarterback to such a depth that if the first two choices are covered, the quarterback draw will be open. By doing this, we can usually avoid passing off balance or avoid being thrown for a loss. I think that's such an important part of it, whether you're somebody who progresses through all four or five receivers before there's a run. I think at some point that planned run has to be within the quarterback's thought process, and it should be something that you practice. I know that over the years I got more and more to into using what we would call a non-pressure escape, meaning that there was nothing happening within the pocket that forced the quarterback out, just that he went through the timing, moved his eyes and feet through the progression, and then was able to escape. Now, for us, it was much like Woody says here, that planned quarterback draw, and that ours was designed to go to uh, the B-gap away from our slide. So we would usually, against an even front as an example, slide to the three technique, right? We would have our quarterback in most situations call that. Our center would verify it. We would go ahead and slide the protection that way. We'd get the manned-up guy on the tackle who's rushing and and maintaining a contained rush, which opens a natural space then for the quarterback to escape through the B-gap. So he would always know that that was part of his decision-making process and he would run. And in the first year when I was a quarterback coach at Baldwin-Wallace and we installed that, our, our quarterback probably had about 70 yards per game on the planned escape. He didn't like what he saw downfield. He didn't like how it was working out with his his choices and how they were getting open. So he would just take off and run through the B-gap. Now, we would have a series of drills where we would work that B-gap open and closed in different ways to escape the pocket, but it was all part of the plan progression, and that's exactly what Woody talks about here. In fact, he goes through and illustrates that in just a frame-by-frame of still shots of quarterback Bill Long scoring Ohio State's second touchdown in the 1968 upset of Purdue, and Ohio State won that game 13 to nothing. I thought this next one was an interesting one. Again, thinking of Woody as that three-yard and a cloud of dust guy. He talks about, number five here, a variety of patterns. Passing is based upon an element of surprise, and it has been our experience that the first time a pass is thrown, the chance of completion is between 70 and 80%. The second time the same pattern is thrown, the success factor will drop between 50 and 60%, and the third time that is thrown, an interception becomes a real possibility. For this reason, we carry more pass patterns than most teams do. We feel that we can do this if we keep our protection the same on most pass patterns and merely change the cuts as long as our passers and receivers can master the new cuts. And I think that's the key there. Your volume of of passing really depends on your guys mastering those, as he called it, new cuts, but mastering the way that they're going to distribute those routes, the spacing of those routes, how they're going to release defenders, and the calibration with the quarterback. So those do take time, but I think everybody would agree uh, the more that a defense sees the same thing over and over and over in the pass game, the more they're able to adjust. So Woody here talks about mixing that up. Six, scouting ourselves. In line with this, are we constantly asking ourselves the question, what do our opponents have on us? We feel that our opponents will take six or seven of our pass cuts and work on them extremely hard during the week they play us, and they will anticipate the use of each of these 
in a certain tactical situation. If we come up with a variation which takes away their key, then a moment of doubt will arise which throws all of their week's teaching open to question. Now we have achieved real purpose, keeping the initiative from the defense. There is scarcely a week that we do not reactivate two or three pass cuts and quite often we'll add or change one or two at halftime. Now I think that becomes a, a dangerous situation when you think about constant change, but I think is is something that you can use same as teaching, right? That what we like to do as an example is be able to break up components of our passes so that we could match half field components together and they would make sense in fitting those together. And it wasn't new learning. It might be new learning in that particular week, but there was a carryover from what was learned before. Number seven, a variety of depths and purposes. Although most of our passes are general purpose passes, we teach our receivers and our quarterbacks that certain passes are particularly good at certain defensive situations. Among these situations are crashing linebackers, a man-to-man defense, a hard corner, a three-deep zone, double coverage, a four-deep invert, and others. Number eight, reading the defense. We identify the defense before the ball is snapped and also try to anticipate what it will do. From there, we read the defense after it reacts, but we do not place as much emphasis on this as many other teams do, for we find that too many times when the quarterback is reading the defense, he becomes very literate but too deliberate. In other words, he takes too long to make up his mind, and when rush factor takes over, he either gets thrown for a loss or he passes badly. So uh, finding that operating system for your quarterback. For me, it was studying guys like Dub Maddox and his R4 system, studying Homer Smith and how he calibrated his passes, studying Dan Gonzalez and the system that he put together, which now he calls Axe. I think those kinds of things, that operating system that gives some consistency so that your quarterback doesn't necessarily have to read the entire coverage. He can start with a certain defender and move on from there to get the reaction of the defense and start to go through his progression and know where he needs to get the ball. Number nine, going with the first choice. Since the pattern is designed to get the first choice open, usually we will pass to him. Often because of coverage, he will alter his course to get open, and the quarterback must learn to read this. By going back eight yards, both the receiver and the quarterback have time to make the necessary adjustments. Number 10, the discriminant use of personnel. It has already been stated that our passing attack must be based first upon the unique abilities of the quarterback. After we determine the pass patterns that he can throw best, then we think in terms of the receivers. If a receiver has unusual speed, we certainly want to use it. On the other hand, there's the case of a Billy Ray Anders who had never played high school football but was a fine basketball player with excellent moves but very little speed. We concentrated on the short passing game to him with hooks, outs, sidelines, and hitches, courses at which he was extremely capable. Teams make the mistake of not getting the ball to the halfbacks often enough. These men always have good footwork and good speed and will break tackles in the broken field for big gains. So we concentrate on getting the ball to halfbacks as often as we can. I think we all agree with that, right? Using your personnel, finding out how they fit. If you have a guy who doesn't have speed, it doesn't make sense to make him the first look 
on a rhythm post, as an example. Maybe he can run that well enough where he can get it open on the break, but anything that might rely on his speed might be something you want to delegate to somebody else. So finding out where your guys fit and matching them to your concepts is is a good sound practice. And certainly getting the ball to your backs is probably something that most offenses don't do enough, right? Those are some of the most dynamic guys on the team. They certainly know what to do with the football. And I heard a coach once say that once I get him the ball in space again, he's a tailback, right? So it's not that he just becomes a pass receiver. Once he gets the ball, he's going to attack the defense and use his moves like he would on a run. 11, the perfectibility of skilled personnel. We do not believe that a man's ability is an innate thing. He may be worn with certain abilities to catch and to pass, but we do believe that these same abilities can be improved tremendously. This is true in the good athlete as it is in the great athletes. We believe that the real success of the passing game is in this individual improvement of the players. This takes time, but more important than time, it takes desire. For if passers and receivers are willing to come out before practice and stay after practice and work in the offseason on their respective abilities, then we will have an outstanding passing game. This is that time of year when we want to see our guys out on the field doing their thing, right? Working without us, working on that passing game, having that desire to really make that part of our offense and our defense good. Number 12, the passer must know his receivers. If the coach asks the passer, he will tell the coach that one of the most important things in the passing offense is for him to get to know the receiver and then respond to the receiver's individual speed and individual moves. When the passer gets to know a receiver so that he can release the ball at the very instant the receiver goes into his reception course, then you have a good passing attack, right? That's part of what's done at this time of the year, too. That's part of what they have to do on their own is to get on the same page. 13, the development of mutual confidence between the pass, passer and the receiver. This is an outgrowth of continued mutual effort. 14, avoid the interceptions. Although this is a negative coaching point, it is extremely important. Here are some stark examples. In 1967, the first score in the Ohio State-Purdue game was an interception, which Purdue ran into the end zone to go ahead 7-0. That was the start of a great humiliation for we went on to lose 41-6. to The following year in the same stadium, the first score resulted from Ted Provost's interception of a Purdue pass, which Ted took all the way to the end zone to give us a touchdown lead. We went on to win the game 13-0 in the biggest upset of the 1968 Big Ten season, a game which started us toward a national championship. Even more recently than that, in the Super Bowl game in 1969 between the New York Jets and the Baltimore Colts, a game which was to have tremendous effect upon the realignment of the professional leagues, the Jets upset the Colts 16-7. Although the statistics in the game were relatively even, the big statistic was that the Colts were victims of five interceptions, the Jets none, and therein more than all factors put together was the one which created the upset. In the plays in this chapter, we shall continually harp on the factors that cause interceptions, and later on we shall list these But as we go through the chapter, we will stress these in the context with the given play. Woody does go on and has a section on interceptions and how they avoid those. It's very detailed. We'll go over that in a minute here. 
15, the avoidance of hands. In a film study or in a conversation with your quarterback, you'll find that one of the big reasons for bad passes is the defensive hands that intervene between the passer and his target. In order to avoid this, we do several things. One, we let our quarterback go to a depth of eight yards, although we will settle for seven. Normally, that means six steps in a set. In getting to this depth, we feel that not only is he in better position to throw over those hands, but also by setting deeper, he tends to scatter the defensive rush so that he can throw between them. Another rarely considered factor is that the farther the defenders must rush to get to the ball, the harder they rush. It is well known that the harder the defenders rush, the more vulnerable he is to getting knocked down, which opens a hole for either running or passing. And as he talked about before, that's a big part of what they do is to open up those lanes so their quarterback can run. 16. The advantages of the semi-rollout pass. 1. It reduces the backside rush, which allows us to send four receivers, both ends, the weanback and the tailback. Also, if we do not split off our tight end, this affords us better protection on the backside for one of the defenders must rush outside of him. 2. It widens the front side rush. By the quarterback sprint to a position behind our split tackle, the defensive end must use a wider contained rush than if our quarterback came straight back. 3. Very important, it strengthens the passer's arm to the open side. By moving toward the target, he can fire a much harder ball on the outcut and similar passes, for he dares not throw a softball with such a great distance. 4. It forces the defense to show quickly. This is particularly true of linebackers and cornermen. This is great help to the quarterback in reading the defense. 5. This movement ties with much of our running game. This particularly helps in countering the effect of our throwback passes with relative motion. Against the sophisticated defenses that we meet today, it is imperative that an offensive team must have balance between running and passing. Coach Duffy Darty often has said that the most successful offensive teams are those that gain two yards on the ground for each one in the air. In play calling, we adhere to this formula. From there, Coach goes into detailing every single one of their routes, and he, he has a written description of it along with the diagram. And the thing that I found interesting, and I thought that at first this traced back to Homer Smith, I did find in here that he has calibrated every single route into when they should release from their quickest ones, which are at 1.1 seconds, all the way up to their longest ones, which are at 3.5 seconds. So he definitely understood the calibration and the timing necessary to make a pass successful. What was really of interest to me as he got into diagramming his pass plays, he not only diagrammed the routes, the protection, he would show the movement of the defense, and then in addition to that, he would diagram what the receiver should do after he caught the ball. Many times you look at everybody's playbook, we have our routes drawn up, but we're not drawing what happens after that catch. And so they extend the play and not only showing where the ball goes, but where other people should go to block. And he has a section in and he has a section in this passing chapter, which he calls peelers. But first, let's talk about what he lists as the causes of interceptions. Since the mechanics of passing will be covered in detail in another section of this book, we shall not talk in terms of mechanics here. However, before we study these and before we go into our plays, it's a good idea for the quarterback to know the situations that cause interceptions so that he can avoid them. Interceptions usually 
caused by our errors in execution. So we shall approach them from the negative. In other words, don't. One, don't throw off balance. Off balance passing is often caused by poor protection, by the quarterback leaving the pocket, or by simply throwing late, allowing the rushers to force the ball into the air. Of one thing you can be sure, if your body is not moving toward the target as the ball is thrown, then you must counteract the loss of body motion by increasing the ball's trajectory. Increased trajectory means the more time for the defense to cover, and the answer is an obvious one. Two, don't throw behind the receiver. In the 1969 Super Bowl game, this caused four of the five interceptions. Assuming that the receiver has whipped the defender to throw the behind the receiver is, in effect, to throw the ball to the defender. And that is what has happened. It is like the butcher who backed into the meat grinder and got a little behind in his work. Three, don't throw late. Inexperienced passers are prone to do this. Very often, the passer waits until the receiver is wide open before he throws the ball. By the time the ball gets there, the coverage has taken effect and the receiver is covered. What the passer must do is throw the ball the instant the receiver begins to get open, and then by the time the ball gets there, the receiver is wide open. And that's where he, he went into that previous section about how those routes are calibrated and when they're thrown. Four, don't throw over linebackers throw between linebackers. To throw over a linebacker is to soften a pass so that a deep man can intercept. Very often the passer can help the receiver get open on a short pass by making a quick fake to pull the linebacker off the receiver. What's interesting as I looked at how they run their pass plays uh, in this playbook is that a lot of times there's somebody getting into uh, a linebacker's window or attention so that another receiver can come open. And they designed their plays that were going to go short or between linebackers in that way. Five, don't throw a long pass short. Since the purpose of a long pass is to throw over the deep defender, any long pass thrown short of this will, in effect, be thrown to the deep defender. On the other hand, if you overthrow the long pass, it can only result in an incompletion, while the underthrown long pass will most certainly result in an interception. Six, don't throw a short pass long. Short passes can be aimed no higher than the shoulders. For a ball thrown at fingertip height on a short pass will often result in what we call a volleyball interception, one that has been touched but not caught. You must remember that any time the ball is not caught and remains in the air, the defense has a much better chance of catching it than the offense because the defenders are converging on the ball while there is usually only one receiver in the vicinity. The ball that has been tipped and not caught has lost its speed and it flutters like an autumn leaf into awaiting hands of the defender. From those two coaching points, we've derived the coaching admonition. Never throw a long pass short and never throw a short pass long. Seven. Don't allow receivers to become bunched, for when they do, they merely bring extra defenders into the area. Passer, when you see this situation arise, do not pass the ball, for you simply cannot force the ball through a crowd. I think that's an important point and something I know I always would emphasize in our different routes is that we had to have the right spacing. And a lot of times the right spacing involves in how are you going to attack or release that defender? If you, let's say, go over top of him, you might get squeezed into, let's, let's say, a, a deeper route or a route outside of you that is supposed to have some space. 
Uh, likewise, if you get forced too low, it might close a window for somebody else. So you really have to pay attention to it. It's something we would drill all the time. A lot of our pre-practice drills would just start in understanding how we were going to attack a defender. And this really worked both into a lot of our spacing routes as well as our four verticals. Number eight, don't allow receivers to run curves, but run angles instead. Running an angle course means that at some place on that course, the receiver will come open, but on a curve course, he can be covered all the way. Number nine, don't use desperate heaves to get your team out of trouble, for it will merely get you into more trouble. And number 10, don't throw deep passes on obvious passing downs, for the defense will be waiting back for the ball. There's one exception to this coaching point. If you find that the defense is playing tight on third down to cut off the out-of-trouble pass, then this is a calculated risk to throw deep. For now, you are wagering an interception against a touchdown. If you're going to throw deep, have a good second-choice release in such a manner that he can get the deep can get deep in order to make the tackle if the ball is intercepted. In this case, the long pass can be as good as a punt. The good passer will be aware of the above situations at all times. When we get into the section on mechanics of passing, we will show how these can be avoided by stressing the improvement of your physical abilities. The last part I want to share with you is actually in his his next chapter, but he talks about decoys or what he calls peelers. Decoys are called peelers for the reason that we want to impress upon them the importance of downfield blocking. One block in the broken field is more important than two blocks at the line of scrimmage. A block in the broken field will always lead to a long run. One, the rule stated in pass receiving explaining the receiver's release for downfield sprinting apply to you as well. Two, look early for the ball because one, it makes you look as though you are the receiver and the defense will cover you, making it possible for the first choice to be open. Two, you serve as an emergency outlet for the quarterback if he must throw the ball early. And three, most important, you can get into your peel course earlier. Three, sprint at the top speed to make the pattern express itself as early as possible. So again, he wants that route, even though they're not going to throw to it, or it may be later in the progression, if you're running a full field progression, that route needs to attract defenders. For as you see the quarterback's hands start to come through with the ball, set your peel course at the receiver. I love this coaching point. Aim at him as though you expect to tackle him. This will put you in position to block the first defender, right? Great coaching point, something I don't know that I've ever coached, but you know we would emphasize blocking in the open field, finding work if you didn't catch the ball. But I think that's a tremendous coaching point that you can implement no matter what kind of passing game you're running is when you're the receiver near or in that area with the guy catching the ball. Run at him like you're going to tackle him. Somebody's going to show up that you might be able to, as coach calls it, peel off of him and spring him for a bigger gain or into the end zone. Number five on your peel, throw high and roll as it forces the defender to play you and thereby lose sight of the receiver. Now, uh, high school level, you're not allowed to throw on him, meaning cut block him, but the idea that you're going to get into him right away, that you're closing that space, means that he's going to lose sight of that other receiver because he has to take care of you first. He has to defeat the block. Six, follow the defender with your head and throw in the direction he moves so that you will not clip him, right? Throw the block. Um, He might be 
talking about a cut block here, but throw the block so you don't clip. And I think this is another one, an important one too. We see so many plays called back because of this. Seven, you must think and know when not to throw a block. If the receiver is obviously in the open, don't throw. Even though your block is a legitimate one, it may be misconstrued by an over-imaginative official. This is a difficult decision to make, but with experience, you can make it. We have pictures to help you understand what we mean. And that's what's impressive about the book that he put together. You know, we're in our time where we're using PowerPoint, but this is 1969 when he wrote this book. And within this book, uh, there's still shots. So, you know, from the game film, which actually are very clear that are illustrating exactly what he means. And as I said before, this is just such a detailed book. While the schemes might not apply to some things that you do, there's so much you can learn by how Woody Hayes thought about the game, the attention to detail that he put into it, and how he presented it in his book, Hotline to Victory. Again, that's one out of print. You can usually find those on eBay, and I highly recommend picking that up if you're able to. Thank you again for listening to the podcast. Follow all we're doing at coachingcoordinator.com and follow me on Twitter at Coach K Grabowski.